Hello, and welcome to Are You Going to Eat Your Fat? This podcast is a resource dedicated to those struggling with eating disorders. If you are struggling with an eating disorder or know someone who is, maybe a brother, sister, daughter, wife, we want to be here to provide resources and offer hope. I am Dina Lewis, and I'm here with my husband, co-host, Brian Lewis. We are not doctors, but we do come with more than 20 years history in dealing with eating disorders. Whether you found us on purpose or by mistake, whatever the case, we hope by the end of this episode, you have learned something, or at least if you are struggling, you do not feel alone. Hi, and welcome back. My name is Dina. And I'm Brian. And today we're going to talk a little bit about what was it that helped me get better when I was in treatment for the second time. And the reason I say second time is I found out that the place that I was attending, Monacatini, is still running. Now, it's not running by the same people that were there when I was there. They did set a goal for me. Like, I wasn't going to go home until I reached a certain weight. So that was kind of a goal for me. I wasn't going to be able to go home and kind of have those weekends away until I got to a certain point in my own recovery. Which was kind of weird, too, because the first treatment center had a goal. And you never reached that yeah. goal. And it was kind of like, eh, well, you know, close enough. And then discharge, which I always thought was kind of a cop-out, a kind of failing you. Because, you know, if one thing an addict needs is to be held accountable. And it seemed like, well, you know, you got close enough. Well, and I think part of that was that we ran out of money. It was a three-month stay. And that would be another topic where I really, really believe that you need to have long-term recovery for everyone, just because three months, you just about detox and you start feeling good and you start opening up to people and then you're ready and then you go home. And we'll talk about that more later. But when I was at the doctor's yesterday, it was a normal doctor's checkup and my doctor came in and this is the first time I'd met him because I'd been with the PA other times that I had visited. And he was very nice. And Towards the end of my visit, I shared with him about the podcast, and he was talking to me about things, and he said, so what was it that helped you get better? And I started sharing with him some things, and then when I got home and later in the evening, I was thinking, you don't get it, do you? You really don't get it. Did you miss that day of medical school training? I don't know what it is, but... It does sort of speak to, I mean, I've talked about before that, well, one thing caused it. Now, here's a medical professional... That's saying, what did you do to get better? As if there's one thing that you do to get better. I'm not trying to put down doctors because there's some great ones out there. And I think the work that they do is valuable, but it does kind of make you wonder. And our intent is to have a doctor on this podcast and we can ask some questions. But one of the questions I'm really interested in is how much training do you get in eating disorders when you go to medical school or how much exposure have you had with eating disordered patients? And I think that number is going to be suspiciously low. Agreed. So I just want to share some of the things that helped me all along. The first thing I'm going to say was having a daily routine. When I reached the treatment center, I stayed on a very regular routine. Everything was the same thing every day, practically. We woke up at five o'clock, certain days we were weighed in, and then it was right to the gym, which I did not. I went and sat and watched people work out. But that was something I was going to have to earn later. Then it was coming home, having breakfast, getting changed, and then meeting, 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 meeting after that, which included like OA meetings, 
meeting with a nutritionist, even a spiritual leader kind of was there. I'm kind of trying to remember all the meetings, but they were throughout the day. And a lot of it was journaling, talking about our feelings, and meeting with the doctors individually as well as in a group. And let's break that down just a little bit too, because I think for most people, when they hear we talked about our feelings, I think I heard half our audience go, oh, you're talking about your feelings. But it's really important for people with disordered eating to talk about their feelings. I mean, even in addiction as a whole, you don't recognize what you're feeling in the moment. You're just feeding the addiction in the hopes that that's going to make you feel better because it's made you feel better in the past. And so the food restriction becomes the addiction and that's what makes you feel good. So, I mean, it's kind of weird to think about and odd to think about, but that's the kind of the impetus for the disease of anorexia. And I'm not a medical doctor, just I'm getting it right out there. But that feelings part of it really is key putting somebody on the road to recovery and being in recovery. So I'm sorry to break down the flow like that, but I think it's really important for people to go, oh, I think maybe I get part of it now or understand that. Well, and you're right, and I'm glad you did. I think one of the first days I was there was sit in a circle in chairs, and I remember I where I was was just all women. We would sit, and the first thing that we would do before we even started the meeting was like, share three feeling words so we could kind of see where everybody was at. And to me, walking into treatment, the only feeling words I knew were happy, sad, mad, angry. You know, those were the four probably I knew. And <laughs> Mad and angry have a very yeah, distinct... Yeah, I know. Well, you know, <laughs> exhausted. Maybe that was a feeling. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to say is that I didn't really recognize my feelings. So right above us, there was a fireplace and there was this huge poster board that was laminated and it had a bunch of happy faces on it or faces on it. And under each face was a word for a feeling. It was all new to me. It was like a foreign language right in front of me because I had never seen all these expressions on these faces before that I could choose from. And to go back a little bit, in growing up, we never shared feelings in my house. When things happened, if when it got to that point, Everybody just went their opposite way. That's my reflection of it. For example, my brother was a missionary, and unfortunately, he got liver cancer at a very young age, had had cancer when he was 18 as well, but got very sick and died within six weeks. I was probably between 19 and 20 years old at the time. It was very difficult for me to go through. It was very difficult for my whole family to go through. At the time when my brother had passed away, everything was put away. The hospital bed was gone. It never looked like any of that had ever happened. And there were times I would want to discuss it, and people in my family did not want to discuss it. I mean, I knew it hurt, but that's the kind of situations we would go through when things got tough and it got down to emotions and feelings. Everybody just kind of, I guess we didn't know what to say. It kind of speaks to that whole thing of feelings, too, because you know, we were raised in a generation, and I heard it, and I'm sure my wife heard it from her parents, was you stop your crying or I'll give you something to cry about. And at the time, as a kid, you're like, what? But you just knew you had to stop what you were doing and bury those feelings. Otherwise, you were going to get punished with some physical, <laughs> physical hand or belt or smack or something. And I'm only pointing that out because 
that's the nature of what we're talking about. And even when we talk about your brother's death, everything's packed up and put away. And we don't talk about unpleasant things. But you can see it probably in your own lives now. When you have a loss, people come up and they go, sorry for your loss. And there's that wave of grief after the initial death. But when time has passed and you bring up somebody's name, maybe somebody doesn't know your history and they say, you know, I remember my brother Bob and he died when he was seven. And people right away, what do they say? Oh, I'm sorry. And they're saying that because it's a long held convention of, I don't want to bring up these unpleasant feelings for this person. And so I'm sorry I brought up his name. I'm sorry that you're having this unpleasant thought related to your departed one. And it's really about time when we do that to not say, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean. And if somebody's grieving at that moment when that name gets brought up and they cry, be there to comfort that person. Be there to ask questions about their departed one. Those are the things that help them. What doesn't help and what I think our society sort of endorses is to pack that away and let's not talk about it again because we don't need that unpleasant things in our lovely home. And it's only through talking through those things that we see good mental health and encourage people to grieve and encourage people just to hey, tell me a little bit about your loved one. What were they like? What did they do? You know, do you miss them? How old were you when you lost them? Boy, that must be really tough. And I think that being that kind of a friend and allowing somebody to express their emotions like that really helps us make the connections to people that I think we lose, especially we lose as we're attached to an addict. But I think we just lose as a culture. Definitely. But I thought that really helped me grow in my recovery because I even remember people of staff there if when I was getting ready to leave treatment for good were like, Dina, you're going to hit triggers. That's part of life. That's part of recovery. But stop for a second and see what's going around in your world at the moment and see if what's going around maybe or what you're thinking about is triggering something. And so that's when it was so great. The one thing, though, a lot of us would say would be like, I feel fat. Well, you can't feel fat. Fat is not a feeling. That isn't a feeling word. It's not a feeling word. And so, you know, you can say, I feel bloated. That's a feeling word. I feel stuffed. I remember it made me angry because I'm like, but I do feel fat, but it's not a feeling word. I also think a really good part that made living outside of treatment work so well was that we did have that opportunity to go home. Now, there were guidelines there too. There was like, you had to have a meal plan all set and checked off by the doctors. And could you phony it up? Yeah, it was really up to you. You had to know what you were doing out there. But like I've said before, they threw you out there to know like, if you're gonna relapse, then relapse and come back and let's talk about it. So it made going home not so scary at that last part because I'd been there. Now, when I went home one time and I was close to my, I guess my weight at the time I was supposed to be at, there was a lot of clothes hanging in my closet that were like size zero and this and that. And Well, talk about those clothes for a minute because it wasn't like 
they were normal clothes. No, I mean, I was always cold. Always. I mean, what department would those clothes come out of? Uh, you know, the junior's department. <laughs> mm-hmm. what, what junior's department? At any store, any junior's department. The problem was it was never long enough, but it's hard to find those small, tiny clothes anymore. You know, I made it work. But the point was, when I got home one time, I needed to go through and clean out my closet. And maybe this is disordered thinking, but the, at the time, I just couldn't imagine giving my clothes away to like a Goodwill or... DI or something like that and donating them because what if I was walking down the street and I saw somebody in those same exact clothes? That was going to trigger me. Not that they just made one pair of those pants or that shirt so somebody else was going to wear that size. But to me, what I needed to do was there was a big dumpster (laughs) outside of our apartment complex. So I threw all those clothes away. Now, was it the smartest move? Because could somebody have used those clothes? Yes. But for my recovery at the time, it was the best decision I could make. Well, and it's understanding the mindset of it's not so much that somebody else has that pair of pants or that outfit on. It's knowing they have my outfit on Mm -hmm. and the size I used to be. And there's a sense of competition there. Like I used to be like that. There's a draw there. And I think what you're saying is you just didn't want to be triggered Mm -hmm. in the sense that I'm not that size anymore. And that's causing me some stress and some grief because I kind of want to be that size again. Yes. And somewhat I'm angry that I am. Or at least you were afraid of it maybe at the time. You were afraid of having that conversation with yourself. Yeah. It just felt like the only option at the moment. And throwing in the dumpster is dumb because all I see is a well-dressed scarecrow somewhere (laughs) in a cornfield with like this. Because I I mean, seriously. I mean, you were talking about the trigger that your clothes brought. And I think that's kind of something all of us can relate to is, you know, you lose a little bit of weight, you drop a size or you drop a pants and you're like, yeah, I'm really doing it. And then you're like, I have all these pants that don't fit anymore. And part of you wants to keep it because, you know, what if I go back to my other size? And part of you wants to forget it. I want to buy all new clothes because I'm this new person. But understanding that this is disordered thinking and it's not that. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's a sense that if I keep these, I have the opportunity to be that size again. Yeah, well, no, I couldn't do that. (laughs) Yeah, but there's still, I think it's a sense of grief and a sense of loss over this thing that I used to do, this behavior, this disorder, this restriction that used to give me comfort. It was my friend. It was how I used to see the world. I used to cope with the world. I mean, I used to, you know, everything would revolve around me when I was like this. And there has to be a sense of how do I give that up? And I just don't think you, maybe you were there. How do I give it up? Yeah, I don't, such a long time ago, but I do remember the act of doing it. But I also wanted to say for some people, I didn't do this, but it was important for some people that came from out of state that once they had reached the next step in their treatment, like they don't have to be there every day that they could move to the next house because there are three homes and one was the main house, okay, where you were staying for the majority of your time. And then as you moved on and you were starting to live a little bit outside of the treatment center, you'd move to the next house, which was next door. 
And then there was a third house that was further down the street where a lot of the girls went and lived at and also attended school or went to college and got a job. And they would come back for dinners and meetings and stuff with us. And I think that was important to their own recovery because we've talked about it being a family disease, but sometimes the family is looking at it as the addict's problem, where it's not, but they can't go back home. It's not a safe place to go back home because it's going to trigger them. Nothing's changed at home. And I'm not blaming parents or friends or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it was better for them to stay where they were and start kind of a new life till they got even more recovery under their belt before they went back to where they were before. And maybe they never went back there because nothing had changed and it was really going to just throw them right back into their eating disorder. And I think that's important for a lot of people. Luckily, I was able to go back home and people were very supportive with me. But I think it was a very important part of many of the women that I was with recovery. They were able to go to school. When they needed extra support, they could come to meetings and talk with the doctors. I don't know what the cost was that went into that, but they would give a lot of service. And service is another thing. When you get too much into your own head, either get to a meeting, which is an OA meeting, or even an AA meeting. And there are those. You can look them up in your area. Even when the coronavirus was going around, they know they weren't having meetings, but they have an online meeting where you can listen online. And I was listening to some of those, and it was really great. Get to as many of those as you can. If you can go to three, four, five a day, go, because you're going to learn something. And you don't need to speak. You can just listen. You'll learn so much just from the people sharing there. But those are some of the things, I think, that have helped me along the way, other than having a really encouraging husband that I think Brian has always been that person that my parents triggered me when I would talk to them about my eating disorder and my brothers. I'm not saying that they couldn't do it. They were scared. But there was something about Brian that he made me comfortable that I didn't feel like I had to put up a wall between the two of us and I was being beat up every time, like, why aren't you doing this? You're freaking me out. There was really an understanding that was happening there. He wanted to know what was going on, all about it. He was at all the meetings and, you know, God bless him. But I never felt like I couldn't talk to him about it. There are probably things I shouldn't have talked to him, but I did learn that it's important to either get a sponsor or someone else you can share these feelings with. Because if you're talking to your significant other about it all the time, there's a point where you need to give them a break. You need to share that with someone else. It's not only that, which I appreciate. Thank you. But it's also, as somebody who wants to be supportive, you can do that. But you do have to realize that as a caretaker and somebody who doesn't struggle with addiction, that maybe there's a reason for all these groups, OA, AA, NA. And you can get support through the Al-Anon and related for caretakers and for survivors of those who have addiction. But it's important to realize that the addict has a certain behavior, has a certain brain wiring. I mean, the brain wiring of an addict are the people that, you know, charge into burning buildings to rescue kids. And we need those people in our world. You know, at times I don't understand. And I would tell Dina, I don't understand. I'm sorry. I'm really trying and struggling to give you support, but I can't be that support for you. I have to recognize 
that that's what you go to the AA meetings for. That's what you go to the OA meetings for. And that's why you have a sponsor because through that like-mindedness, through that camaraderie or whatever you want to call it, they understand it and they know what you're going through. They've heard these stories before because they're their stories and they can recognize things that sounds like manipulation. That sounds like your disease talking. I'm not going to use that language. I don't know it. And, you know, yeah, do I want to be able to do that? Sure. But you kind of have to recognize that you're not always the best source. You know, you can give the information. Sometimes it's not the information. It's where the information comes from that goes, oh, I understand now. So that's the kind of piece that I think we're missing with the support and the sponsor that they have at the meetings. But I'm curious to know that when you started getting better and you had this transformation of your body from this sick person to this healthy person, and you came back home, what experiences did you have of people recognizing you as that sick person? And did that trigger you? Did that, I mean, what was that experience? Well, I mean, I do remember, and I think I've shared it and I'll share it again. There were people like when I was in the grocery store and they'd be like, they never knew my name, but are you that girl that was always walking in the park? We were so worried about you and you looked so, well, terrible. Sick, frail. <laughs> and sick. We were praying for you. And I had no clue that these people that I'd never met, I'd never noticed in my life, were noticing me. And it felt good to know that people, I guess, were caring. I can say that I remember coming home and having this jump to my step. I had those kind of Tigger shoes on where they're like bouncing up and down, like Tigger from Disneyland and stuff like that. And I'm not kidding because I had a renewed sense of life. I had energy that I had never had before. I felt like I was just bouncing around. I can't explain it, but that's how it felt. And people were like, you look so much younger. And I kept thinking, well, no, I must look younger now because I'm thinner, but I must have looked like I aged 40, 50 years at my worst. And people were so receptive. And I was actually called by many people to come in and speak in their health classes and even some of the college classes and share my story. My mom, I said, was a nurse. So some of her teachers at the time would call me and say, hey, we're talking about this. There you go. In nursing, could you come in and share? And I would. I think people were in awe of that. And it made me stronger in my own recovery, because I knew maybe there was a reason why I went in this direction. And now I could help people and help others. So it was great. I'm not saying that it was all roses and butterflies, but for the most part, I felt so much better and I could live a life again that I never thought I would have. If there's any gentlemen listening here, you know, like I told you, (laughs) I didn't have my period for between eight and 10 years. I'm not listening. (laughs) And I really thought that's the end of me. I'll never be able to have children. And we'll get into more of that detail later. But to let you know, I was able to birth five beautiful babies, which are now teenagers and young adults. And that's a blessing. That's a miracle right there. I never thought I'd have the opportunity because I remember telling my mom in the kitchen one time in the middle of my eating disorder, I think I'm just going to adopt because I couldn't even think of gaining weight and what that would do to my body at the time. But anyway, I just want to say 
how much happiness this podcast really brings me. I'm nervous, and this is the first time I've ever done something like this. So forgive me for that. But I just hope we've touched just for even one person out there and that this is helping you guys so much. And like I said, everyone I meet, I try and share. I'm calling schools. I'm calling dietitians and nutritionists and people that are doing exercise programs. And I'm letting them know that this is available because this is a real problem out there. And we can't fix it, but we can sure help and make you not feel alone. So thank you guys for listening so much. You know, there is a cost to putting this podcast together. We're willing to do our share, but this is a shameless plug for your, if you feel like you'd like to contribute, you'd like to see this podcast continue, you can do so with PayPal to the Gmail address, eatthatfat at gmail.com. We will get a Patreon to get people to contribute, but you know, there is a cost to doing this and I don't know how long we can do it on our money. So like I said, we're willing to do it for as long as we can, but if you find value, you're entertained you find this useful information and you'd like to see it continue, I would ask that if you could find it in your heart to give just a minimum amount of $2, $3, $5, or if you're so inclined, here's a million dollars, Brian and Dina. (laughs) I won't say no, but granted, we're going to use that money and we're going to put it to good use to not enrich ourselves, but to continue the work that we've started in this service that we started. And that's our commitment and our promise. So let's close with the serenity prayer. Okay. God, God, grant grant me the the serenity serenity to accept the things things I cannot change, change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. It works if you work it, so work it. it, You're You're worth it. it. Bye, guys. Thank you for joining us. If you found this podcast useful or we have given you hope and you want to reach out and contribute, feel free to do so at eatthatfat at gmail.com. That's eatthatfat at gmail.com. Our pledge to you is that every penny that we get in contributions goes to production costs and keeping the lights on. We will not pay ourselves, but anything above and beyond production costs will go to benefit organizations that specialize in eating disorders. Please reach out to us if you need resources or you just need to talk. You are not alone and there are people who care. Keep coming back. It works if you work it, so work it. You are worth it.